Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you all very much for tuning in from around the world, wherever you are. And what a time for us all to get together. Politics at the moment, it seems to me, is like one of those brilliant thrillers where nothing is quite what it seems. You know what I mean? There's a sort of surface which is obvious, and yet underneath things are a little different. And in that sense, politics at the moment is even more compelling, really, than Brexit, because Brexit, it was a thriller, a helter-skelter ride, but it was all on the surface. We could all, at every twist and turn, see what was happening and why it was happening. Uh, Don't get me wrong, it was historically significant. The consequences are far from played out. Well, look at the election results on Thursday as one example and look at the problems with trade as another and in Northern Ireland. But you could see the thrills. There was no mystery. Now it feels to me slightly different. Let's take the example of Nicola Sturgeon. There she is, unquestionably triumphant. Uh, You know, the winning again and almost getting an an overall majority for the SNP in a parliament where a voting system was designed to prevent any party getting close to an overall majority, having been the incumbent for a long, long time, is a triumph. And yet she doesn't fully know how to get this referendum. She's working on the assumption, or hope, that political pressure will do it. But the legal position is clear. A British government has to authorise a referendum. And how does she get it? When a Prime Minister, if a Prime Minister, refuses. So although she is strong, she is in a precarious position. And if she were to lose a second referendum, she would be finished. And if Johnson were to lose a referendum on independence, he too would be finished. One reason he won't call one, in my view, until polls suggest it is utterly safe to do so. So, you know, yes, she's strong, but also has cause for concern. Johnson, astonishing electoral achievement, a fourth term of a Conservative government, and there he is rearranging the political map in England. But how does he deliver for those voters? It's not easy. So it's exciting times, and you knew I was going to say this. Coming live from my boudoir on Wednesday evening is a Rock and Roll Politics special streamed from King's Place, the King's Place website. Many of you know that already and will have got your tickets. But others, please join this time, A, because it's the last time in my boudoir. But what a time to get together to reflect on these epic times is Keir Starmer not up to it? Is Labour more widely doomed? Can the Conservatives reinvent themselves as a Keynesian left of centre, almost, in some respects, party? What about Scotland? And where is this going to go? A majority in that Parliament for independence. And yet, Johnson, unyielding, I think, not as an affectation, but because he's scared he'd lose a referendum. So much. So please join me on Wednesday evening. There will be our normal, totally unreliable predictions, live questions throughout the evening. And some of you have sent in questions saying, please ask them at the live event or the podcast. Well, I'll ask some of those at the live event. And um, yeah, we will have some fun. But more precisely we will crack it. We will make sense of it all. We will be the detectives in this thriller, which is so utterly compelling. So that's uh, on Wednesday evening. What I'm going to do for the podcast is turn straight to your questions. Your questions are always brilliant, but they've been even better this week because they help to contextualise the drama as well as reflect on the fast-moving events, you know, the Starmer reshuffle and all the rest of it. Uh, And they're great. So I'm going to go straight to them. But book that ticket Wednesday night. It's going to be good. 
Okay, so let's go straight to your questions. Uh, Scott Creswell asks, although there are some disappointing elections for uh, Labour, could it be evidence of Labour gaining support in new areas? We've seen places such as County Durham and Hartlepool fall to the Tories, but Labour are doing better in areas such as Oxfordshire, Cambridgeshire and the west of England. Could these become safe Labour areas in the future? Well, this is the redrawing of the political map if Keir Starmer hadn't decided to start a brutal but crudely thought-through reshuffle on Saturday. There would have been much more focus on Labour doing well in some of those areas um, to counter the Tory triumphs in Hartlepool and elsewhere. Uh, he also asked Scott, Tracy Brabin, elected mayor of West Yorkshire, that means a by-election in Batley and Spen. Will this be more bad news for Labour? We have to assume that the Tories will win that seat. There are too many similarities, not precise. There were local issues in Hartlepool that contributed to the Tory victory. But the pattern is in place in these kind of seats. So I think, bizarrely, in some respects, the Conservatives will be as favourites to gain Batley and Spen. Their new safe terrain is that sort of area. And as John Curtis has observed, the election genius... By the way, did you see John Curtis over the last few days? He was like one of those uncoiled springs coming, bursting into action, having been put in a cupboard for the last year during the pandemic. He was back. Never seen anyone so overexcited. Genius. And he observes, rightly in my view, that one of the divides at the moment remains over Brexit, whether you were for it or a Remainer. And uh, that partly, partly explains what happened in England uh, last week. OK, from David O'Leary, another question from sunny Brussels. It always shines, that sun in Brussels, David. To what extent do you agree with the columnist Pete Stephen Bush, who argued in The Times today, as in Monday that Starmer may not be very good at politics. Yeah, actually, David, I do agree with Stephen's assessment. I don't see how anyone can reach any other conclusion. I'll be talking more about this on Wednesday evening. Uh, we talked about one issue uh, when discussing Scott's observations, um, that Brexit remains a dividing line. Leadership is fundamental. And Starmer reminds me, you know, when uh, Blair and Brown were prime ministers. They very excitedly appointed business leaders to their governments, and they assumed that these business leaders would bring a bit of class to their governments, accomplished performers in their fields, entrepreneurs, the successful dynamic policy makers within their businesses, and none of them flourished in government. Uh, there was kind of all kinds of examples of this from Gordon Brown bringing Digby Jones in, uh, bizarrely. No no well-known uh, left-of-centre radical. Uh, to some of uh, Blair's appointments, none of them flourished. None of them understood politics, however good they were in business. Clearly, Keir Starmer was a brilliant lawyer, rose to the top in terms of being DPP, Director of Public Prosecutions. I don't see much evidence that he understands or has a feel for the demands of politics, let alone uh, leadership. But much more on Wednesday night on this and everything else. Uh, Kathy Mears writes, um, oh, she got a lot of you reading The Times at the moment. She wonders about a piece that Matthew Paris wrote, not the one I was talking about last night, a piece which I disagreed with him about, about the need for a new centrist party. I'm so wary of that term, centrist. Um, but you know all that because that was the theme of last week. Uh, she wonders about his analysis uh, that the Johnson bubble will burst because this levelling up agenda is not really a Tory one. Um, she worries, though, that Matthew might be wrong about that and that we're on a path to an ultra-populist meltdown, as Cathy puts it. I certainly agree there are huge tensions within Johnson's electoral triumph. Levelling up with its implications for the role of the state is a left of centre proposition 
in the same way Osborne economics, which he portrayed as being progressive and centrist, were right of, well, well right of centre uh, economics. Now, can a right party deliver left of centre economics? Uh, you raise a key theme, as did Matthew Paris. Jonathan Smith says, in my modern studies higher, I didn't know they called that now, the shift of the so-called C2s from Labour to the Conservatives in the 80s was much studied. God, isn't it weird? Some of us lived through the 80s, Jonathan. It's now history on your history or politics syllabus. Seems like yesterday to me. The further loss of traditional Labour votes in Hartlepool makes me wonder about habit and voting how much of the way people cast their votes is purely inertia. Well, not wholly... I mean, Jogger makes the point that in Shetland and Auckland, Orkney, they still vote Lib Dem, and they seem to be the ultimate 19th century hangovers. Yeah, well, some people stick to tradition, but I don't think that is the pattern in voting in current times, where you've had these extraordinary shifts from traditional Labour support in Scotland and the north of England going elsewhere, extraordinarily to the Tories in England, to the SNP in Scotland. And why? Brexit is unquestionably part of it, but it's not the whole story. By the way, so I think part of it is the vaccine rollout, which is a very interesting example of government connecting with voters. Voters get a text telling them to go and have a vaccine. And I think some of them think it's almost like a text from Boris Johnson. Oh, Boris has given me 315 at the local surgery to free me of the virus. And that sense of connection needs to be there all the time in politics. But mostly politicians don't bother to make the connections so that voters get that what's happening at Westminster connects with their lives. Okay, uh, from Jenny Seba. Um, she wonders about, uh, oh yeah, this thing about leave and remain uh, being a divide like John Curtis, and that Labour's attempts to ride both these horses will fail. I, I agree that you can't. Um, and, and Starmer's clunky attempt to deal with this, uh, Jenny, is to be silent as if silence means the issue will go away. And I think this is one example of him not understanding politics. Um, now, in Wales, Labour have managed to get some of the Brexit vote back, and I'm told they do it partly, uh, this is the Welsh Labour Party, by framing an argument about patriotism in a different way. But yeah, I think there is an issue about how the Labour leadership deals with the ongoing Brexit saga. Now, they obviously don't put the case for Remain. That would be crazy. But I think there are ways in which you could bring those two sides together by calling for a better Brexit and scrutinising the current one. But as I say, silence seems to me a very clunky response to what is an immense challenge for any Labour leader. Uh, thank you. Uh, Martin Jones wonders, as he's instinctively a risk-taker and to call Sturgeon's bluff, what are the chances that Johnson, sooner than commonly thought, grants the SNP a referendum which they'll lose and so settle the independence issue as happened a while back in Quebec? Well, Martin, no poll at the moment on independence in Scotland suggests that Johnson could call a referendum and be relaxed about the outcome. Far from it. And as I said earlier, while that is the case, I don't think he's going to call it. Whatever hellish waves of fury that triggers in Scotland. as If he calls it and loses, he's finished. So he won't call it unless he's pretty sure he can win it. Uh, Dominique Jewell from France wonders, if a centre-grounded politics doesn't exist, should or could Labour invent one? Well, we discussed how it doesn't. It's, it's a myth, the centre-ground. But, that was last week, uh, Dominique is on to something in this sense. The challenge of leadership 
is to make what you propose, however radical, seem like common sense. Kind of, oh yeah, it's obvious we should be doing that. And therefore there is a sort of, you can call it common ground or um, a consensus around radicalism, which is, I think, possible to achieve. You have to be a smart leader to do it. I've talked about this before. You have to be a teacher, a persuader. Uh, and it's remarkable how few national politicians are able to do it. Evidently, you can see who can do it because they're successful. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, Johnson in his own way, uh, Andy Burnham in Manchester, and so on. Um, Paul Stakelis wonders, uh, with reference to one of your listeners who suggested that all non-conservative parties should join forces for one general election on the sole issue of PR in order to bring about a change in the voting system, do you agree that the only reason they don't do that is that in the end, Labour, to take one example, hold out for the occasional big win? Yeah. Hope in politics is the source of much torment, but a driving force. Leaders, probably even Starmer, who must be A, exhausted and B, bewildered, will dare to hope there's a way through that under this voting system he can win an overall majority and become Prime Minister at some point. And that is one of the factors preventing a change to the voting system. Not the only one, as we've discussed many times on this podcast together. Okay, thank you, Paul. Another Paul, Paul Cooper. Uh, 4.3 million people living in poverty in the UK in 2019 to 2020. He says that's 31% of children. Um, I didn't know it was as high as that, Paul, but you, you've got the figure. Uh, poverty exacerbates inequality, unquestionably. As one of the world's richest economies and also able to print its own money, why is this ongoing tra tragedy never mentioned as the starting point for the levelling up agenda that voters seem so keen on? Well, it's a good point about the challenge of fleshing out, fleshing out the levelling up agenda. Uh, Boris Johnson loves the big picture arguments. Oh, give people across the country opportunities. Um, but look at the challenges and then compare that with the policy agenda and the detail of the policy agenda. And does it actually match? And that's a very vivid example of uh, challenges in terms of levelling up child poverty. How do you address it? With what resources? Where are those resources? Remember, Rishi Sunak is a sort of kind of, in inverted commas, sound money, George Osborne style, in many respects, uh, chancellor. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good point. The detail is always the problem when you have these big picture arguments that are certainly appealing. Andrew Kitching wonders about Labour's uh, challenges. Uh, they'll have to campaign to make our relationship with Europe work better and give up rejoining, he suggests. They also need to, th I think they have given up actually on that one, Andrew, but they haven't argued about making it work better. As I say, Clunky Starmer has opted for silence. They also need to think how we keep the union. Johnson won't come up with any radical reforms, read the latter. Uh, but you can be sure that in any future election, the Tories will say Labour will do a dangerous deal with the SNP in order to bolster their English core vote. Yeah, like they did. Do you remember in 2015 when Ed Miliband was leader, they had all those photos of Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's sort of coat pocket. Um, and they'll do that again. And unless a clever Labour leader deals with these issues in advance of the election. Uh, you know, we know they're coming. Andrew knows they're coming in an election campaign. So how do you preempt these uh, becoming almost impossible questions in the middle of a campaign? It needs clever leadership. You know, so we live in a presidential culture. I know it's a party-based system, but there is so much focus on the leaders. Um, and if leaders can't rise to the challenge, they should look elsewhere, any party. 
I'm not talking about Labour specifically at the moment, any party is so obvious, but they rarely do, and there is a shortage of alternatives as well. Um, anyway, thank you, Andrew. Anyon Malik writes, everyone's getting excited about the Hartlepool result, but forgetting the past. In the first set of local elections after the 1992 general elections, the Conservatives increased their vote after the, sorry, after the 92 general election, they increased their vote. And all the talk was of a sea change towards a one-party state, in effect. I remember that talk. Um, and then there was Black Wednesday when we fell out of the exchange rate mechanism and the Conservatives never led again and then Labour won in 97 with a landslide. Uh, yeah, could things turn on its head again, Anyon wonders. They could. Everything, it seems to me at the moment, seems fragile. It's part of the fascination, the sense of it being a political thriller. But equally, they might not. History doesn't repeat itself. The past is an unreliable guide, which is why Starmer should be very wary of following Peter Mandelson, who was you know, hugely underrated as a minister and a great strategist, but a product of the 80s and 90s. This is all different now. Um, and so you can't work on the assumption there will be a dramatic accessibly understood trauma for Johnson that changes everything. It might happen. Uh, you know, he's a character that could lead to such a situation. But that cannot be taken as read by anyone <laughs> trying to make sense of the Labour leadership at the moment. Okay, uh, Stephen McGeoch writes, he adds, I struggled with his surname last time he wrote. I hope that's right, Stephen. Anyway, in Scotland, Stephen suggests, the SNP shrewdly describes itself as a social democratic party. It's not a claim that gets much examination, but the branding is popular. Uh, shouldn't the Labour Party do something similar? Um, oh, and thank you for your very kind comments about the podcast uh, and the live show, Stephen. Much appreciated. Uh, yeah, it is, it is understated, I think, but a, an important part of the repertoire... Uh, Nicola Sturgeon describes herself as a social democrat. Alex Salmond does. And yet in England, quite often, they say, oh, Alex Salmond, he's, you know, he's a kind of, he just goes with the flow, you know, kind of plays, a, plays it just to get independence. And they, you never talk about Nicola Sturgeon out of that independence framing. But they are both, I think, genuinely social democrats, Um Alex Salmon once told me that Harold Wilson was his political hero. In, you know, Wilson was a kind of social democrat of his time. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point. The, the, the trouble with this whole rebranding and focusing on what is social democracy and all the rest of it, that's not one for a Labour leader at the moment. A Labour leader must uh, establish an agenda, explain why... And Labour leaders are useless explaining why they are acting in such a way. That's the political teacher bit. And then get policies that arise from the values and the agenda and not get diverted by anything else because that policy agenda is huge. Okay, um, let's go on now. Oh, yeah, Rob Watson uh, makes some interesting points. He wonders um, whether... Yeah, we're in about to go through a barber-style boom with a reference to the Tory Chancellor under Ted Heath who initiated a somewhat crude barber boom which soon turned to dust um, with economic crises spiralling out of control and then they lost power in February 1974. Uh, with Sunak's bung to homeowners with his stamp duty holiday, his mortgage guarantee schemes, and the artificially holding down of interest rates, um, will these be seen at eventually as an economic risk too far? I think they may well do. I mean, others point to the fact that, you know, there are predictions of mind-boggling growth levels in the next few months. Uh, but that, of course, is from a very, very low base during the pandemic. Um, but then... 
what about the wider context? You know, the, the ending of the furlough schemes, Brexit and other, and other things. I, I suspect everything will be, again, to use the, the phrase I used about politics more widely, much more fragile than it will seem this summer when there will be touch wood, a kind of euphoric mood as people emerge from the pandemic. So I think you're right about that, Rob. Also, this very interesting observation. I talked about the John Curtis observation about the divide between Remainers and Brexiteers still applying. But he makes an interesting point, um, Rob Watson. Um, I recall seeing a report this week that home ownership rates in Hartlepool are significantly higher than in areas of London and the metropolitan cities, where renting is predominant. And he wonders about the significance of this divide. And I think it's huge and interesting. Kind of political journalists from London went up to Hartlepool, and indeed other parts of the Red Wall, and they kind of got, they're saying, oh, it's good. in these poor towns, they've been ignored, everyone's so poor compared to glitzy London. And they go up and meet people who own their homes, who quite often have a quite posh car in their driveways, who live quite near their place of work, if they're lucky enough to have work. And then they go back to London, where people are completely broke, um, can't afford to buy a one-bedroom flat, let alone a house, let alone a car. And if they owned a car, they wouldn't be able to drive anywhere because of the congestion charge. And so the divide is far more complex, as Rob Watson suggests, than north versus south. And I think it's a, it's a really interesting and important observation. Thank you. Andrew Anderson says, when I studied politics 40 years ago, under Henry Drucker at Edinburgh University. So Andrew, yeah, I can kind of work out how old you are on that basis. We have students today often emailing with uh, questions uh, as they're studying their finals. And I'm slightly worried that, you know, the excitement of the podcast will mean they won't be able to revise effectively. Not that worried, to be honest, just listen to the podcast. But anyway, that won't affect Andrew. That was all 40 years ago. Anyway, Henry Drucker, his uh, tutor, uh, in politics, made the argument, this is really interesting, that in a sense the turning point and move to what became Thatcherism, monetarism, wasn't the 1979 election, but when Jim Callaghan was forced to go to the IMF for a loan and implement their medicine. He argued that in a sense the framing of the political discourse changed in 1976 under that Labour government and the 79 election merely reinforced that. He wonders whether the reverse is happening now. And that's so interesting, Andrew, because I feel, since I've been a political journalist, you know, I began in uh, the uh, 80s, quite late 80s, I hasten to add, being a mere youth, um, the argument has essentially been rooted on the right, you know, how little the state can do. Uh, and now it's all about what the state can do and how much more it can do. And so it is a kind of ideological shift. And you're absolutely right, or your tutor was, that the shift towards Thatcherism didn't begin with her victory in 79. Callaghan made a famous speech written by Peter Jay, his son-in-law, went on to be BBC economics editor and Washington ambassador, where Callahan said, you can't spend your way out of a recession. And it was partly a reframing of the arguments around Keynesianism, which had prevailed for quite a long time. And so the scene was set for Thatcherism, earlier than Thatcher's rule. Something like that is happening now. That doesn't mean Labour will win because its current leadership shows no sign of recognising this ground, this terrain, uh, whereas Thatcher absolutely recognised what was happening in the mid-70s and went for it with a radical verve. Um, but the path was laid by others. Uh, so a really interesting comparison. Thank you. Okay, from Andy Stubbings, I enjoy listening to your rock and roll politics while painting art rather than home improvement. 
Well, I hope the painting's going well at this very moment. Andy, what are you painting? Could you let me know? Is it the sea? Um, a self-portrait, perhaps? Anyway, Andy says, I've spent the week thinking about the Hartlepool by-election and feeling unelectrified by Keir Starmer's interview performances. Is he really the Messiah, or has Labour got itself a plodding, diligent John the Baptist instead? Yeah, well, are you doing a painting of Keir Starmer, um, Andy, in, with your view of him, rather than John the Baptist? It's, um, it's very interesting. Parties don't really know for sure what kind of leader they're going to get in terms of leaderliness until the period begins when a person assumes, acquires the crown. And, well, I'm going to talk, as I said, about Starmer on uh, Wednesday night, not only about that, some of these other deeper themes, but you have to be, it seems to me, in British politics, a leader who is a performer, stroke artist, stroke teacher. It's not the only qualification of leadership, but it is one of the essential qualifications. Look at the big winners, Thatcher, Blair, Johnson, now comes into the category of big winners with constraints and qualifications. Okay, thank you. Uh, Chris Park, is the media in danger of framing Johnson as a big state centrist in the same way as they cast Cameron as a centrist reformer? Uh, Chris Park points out that real-term spending cuts are being planned in some areas. Well, this is, if you like, the counter to the earlier question about whether we're going through an ideological shift. Are we going through an actual ideological shift or a kind of pretend one? That uh, Boris Johnson doesn't really mean it, and anyway, if he did, Rishi Sunak wouldn't let him have the funds to do a real sort of Joe Biden-esque Keynesian expansion which really leveled up. We'll, we'll know in the next few months uh, which of those two. But, and you're right, I, I, actually I don't think the media fell for Cameron uh, in every sense of that word. You know, I remember having a dinner, one of the people at the dinner party was uh, Ian Katz, who went on to edit Newsnight, who was deputy editor of The Guardian then. And he just said, oh, I love uh, Cameron. Cameron was in opposition. Cameron's the real deal, not Brown. Uh, here's the real, you know, moderniser. And he, he, he fooled a lot of people. A lot of people at The Guardian bought into it. With Johnson, it's slightly different. Um, there's a, the, the, because there is more wariness about his personality, I think there will be more scrutiny about the degree to which levelling up is fleshed out in policy terms. But let's see, as I say, the next few months in politics are going to be very interesting, important, and in some respects, I think, defining for Starmer, Johnson, and others. Uh, Den Cartledge uh, wonders, he said, he enjoyed the last podcast while watching heavy bank holiday rain through the window of a holiday cottage. What a depressing image. Dead. The whole, the, not not the listening to the podcast, the rest of it. Uh, he said, I thought I'd add my suggestion to the who could have done better as Labour leader in 2015 and 2017 debate. I'm going to dodge 2015 and suggest someone for 2017. Step forward then, Shadow Chancellor, then Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell. Well, McDonnell is a very interesting figure in the sense that you know how in politics when people take center stage suddenly or gradually even and most of the time you're not surprised by what happens subsequently you know you kind of have an idea of how they will perform as an interviewee etc mcdonald was one of the few who i was genuinely surprising when i heard that corbyn had appointed him shadow chancellor i thought oh god that's what an act of misguided provocation this angry figure uh, will, you know, alienate people. Actually, he was thoughtful. As an interviewee, he was one of the best. He was emollient, conciliatory. Uh, he, he engaged with other parts of the Labour Party while he was in that post and held the whole Corbyn project 
together at times. Um, but I tell you, Dan, if he had been leader in 2017, he would have been slaughtered. There's uh, too much, you know, past archive, more than with Corbyn in a way, of him being angry and all the rest of it. And Corbyn, for that fleeting period, when he did do well, Labour did well in the 2017 election, I know they lost, but that they made significant gains against all expectations. There were some who sort of saw Corbyn, Corbyn's a very interesting, sort of unyielding radical, but with a rather gentle presence. It's quite an unusual combination. And for a time, I did a Radio 4 series on Corbyn's leadership, and some of those who went to his rallies, I interviewed them, and they told me they had never been interested in politics at all, but saw Corbyn almost as a kind of religious leader, uh, a kind of messiah figure. I don't think that would have happened with McDonnell, but he was and is a more substantial figure, and he has been quite careful in this mood against Starmer taking shape at the moment. Um, and I think he's at the, at the end of his patience with Starmer, but he's been trying not to sort of say, right, we're going to challenge him and all the rest of it. Um, but I don't think he would have done any better than Corbyn in terms of electoral impact then. And finally, Alex Ingram points out, um, I can't see a route back for Labour in Scotland that doesn't involve electoral reform for the UK as a whole. And given, he says, that the government is going to change some of the proportional uh, systems for mayors and all the rest of it, as you might know, they're considering looking at sort of the first-past-the-post type voting systems rather than the proportional ones. Um, uh, won't they anyway, Labour, have to define a position on PR, which might therefore lead them to logically advocate it for the UK as a, the UK Parliament. Well, maybe Alex, I'm, I'm, you, you are all gradually converting me, or, or those of you who believe in it, to a change in the voting system. But I'm not there yet, and just for those of you who haven't heard it before, my reservations are that one. For the Labour Party, it would be excuse not to get its act together, but to work on the assumption it can get to power just by changing the voting system. Two, I don't see how it happens. Uh, three, there is this massive policy agenda. You know, turn in any direction. Uh, we've talked about some of it in today's podcast, but you know, climate change, social care, the Scottish question, which uh, has is on the agenda. I mean, how many constitutional questions can we deal with at the same time? The fallout from Brexit, this issue that uh, Paul Cooper and others have raised in today's podcast about the real depths of levelling up challenges. And on I can go. And do we really want to devour all that energy and time working out what voting system uh, how do you get it? Will there be a referendum before it's implemented? And on and on it goes. Uh, we have been around this circuit many, many times. So forgive my scepticism. You're, you lot to write each week saying, yeah, we've got to do it. It's the only way for this to happen. I'm, you're swaying me, but I'm not quite there yet. Anyway, I think we better stop there. Many of you have also asked questions and said, please read them live on Wednesday night. So I will. Uh, but there will still be the space for live questions on Wednesday night. I will be reflecting in a more framed way my thoughts about the changing political landscape. Should Starmer be ch dropped? Should Can Labour survive? Is Johnson realigning politics for a long period of time, Scotland. And there will be, as I say, a great range of questions. I know that for sure. Even if none arrive, and I know there will be thousands, um, we've got already some from, from you. And yeah, unreliable predictions. And the last one from my boudoir. Anyway, look, thank you so much for listening today. What a lot going on. Uh, and... God, blimey, it'll be different again by Wednesday night. Uh, so let's all keep in touch. We're the ones making sense of it all. And this one, as I say, is a much subtler thriller than the Brexit years because nothing is quite as it seems. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Uh, you know, fine. I, I can't see it. I just can't see it.
Um, Noah Keats writes, he said, this is quite interesting about the role of political columnists. I'm an aspiring journalist and I'm interested in your previous position as chief political commentator of The Independent. Your podcast has often astutely discussed the role of the political media in framing arguments. And so I'm curious to learn what factors frame the issues you discussed in your columns. Similarly, I'd be fascinated to learn how the impact and influence of political columnists in the main broadsheets has altered, if at all, over the last two decades. The role of political columnists is really interesting. There's no doubt uh, before the sort of expansion of the political columns, so now there are sort of hundreds of columnists, whether they do it in blogs or, you know, online in some sort of social kind of media type newspaper or the printed version. Uh, There are hundreds of them. Up until about, I don't know, the late 80s, early 90s, there were really only four or five political columnists. And they were hugely influential. Uh, You know, governments ached to get the approval of Peter Jenkins, Alan Watkins, Peregrine Warsthorpe, people like these figures were bigger than most cabinet ministers. Even now, that is, to some extent, the case. You know, I remember people like Ed Miliband really would have loved to have got just the odd positive comment from a Times columnist, because he knew rightly that, as I said earlier, you know, the BBC have a weird weird view of centrism, and they kind of saw the Times a bit like them, and saw the columnists as centrists, and they all slaughtered Ed Miliband, every single one, and I don't think they'd have been published if they had praised him, Um, but he would have loved it, and it would have had an influence, because it would have stood out, Uh, and even though few read columns, they do have an impact on politicians and therefore on the way leaders are perceived. Uh, So they continue to have an influence. In terms of choice of subject, I was always very keen to kind of treat uh, leaders in a kind of really three-dimensional way. So you know, my colleague at the event, John Rental, slaughtered uh, Gordon Brown, slaughtered Ed Miliband, uh, endorsed Cameron at the elections, and and bought, in my view, uh, far too generously a view of Cameron. Um, whereas I tended to see Brown and Miliband as figures much deeper than Cameron. So I kind of, I like to. C- challenge orthodoxies but only if I believe they were right to be challenged as I am doing now with this perception of the center ground Um, but I was also deeply unfashionable in that whenever a kind of slee story broke I tended to see it as pretty insignificant even defended George Osborne there was a frenzy when George Osborne was shadow chancellor early on that he had some drink with Peter Mandelson on a Greek tycoon's boat I can't even remember what it was about but loads were saying Osborne's got to go Osborne who was he was a very sensitive and quite fragile figure in some ways thought he might have to go I remember writing a column saying absolutely this is not the reason why George Osborne should have to go um you have to have discussions with comment editors, and that can be very difficult, depending on who the comment editor is and the stance of a paper. Uh, so it's kind of multi-layered, actually, political uh, columns and political columnists. Um, but it's a, it's a it's a great thing to do. I left the BBC to write columns. I was a BBC political correspondent and started writing columns while at the BBC but in the end you can't do it really because you do have to express views which take you beyond impartiality and objectivity. Impartiality is easy and there are things you can do within the framework of impartiality. You can contextualise and you can dig deep in terms of factual information but you can't write columns which shine light without expressing views and so in the end I, I, I left to write columns and my colleagues at Westminster at the time were Hugh Edwards, Jeremy Vine, John Sopel. So you can see the routes taken have been somewhat different but I honestly I haven't regretted it for a second. Um, 
stopping being a political correspondent to do other things. Um, and finally, from... Uh, oh, yeah, that's another one. Another one, Chris Buck says, what about an anti-Tory coalition? Um, he says, "You." Uh, this is Chris Buck saying, you said this week that the flaw in the anti-Tory coalition theory is that Starmer would have to admit that he couldn't win without it. Yeah. I think that Starmer could be persuaded to do this as Labour would find it almost impossible to form a Westminster government without making significant gains in Scotland, which doesn't seem likely any time soon. However, under a PR system, Labour would regain a significant number of seats north of the border. Trouble is, they won't get a PR system until they're in power. Um, and even then, uh, would it get the majority backing of the Labour Party? It's 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 these are circuitous routes. But if the Conservatives win again under first past the post for a fifth successive time, this story will erupt. It was very very intense, by the way, in the Labour Party after the nineteen ninety two election. Um, I remember Jeff Rooker, a Labour MP now in the House of Lords, saying to me, "If John Smith." doesn't grant a referendum on electoral reform there's going to be blood on the carpet it's the only way we're ever going to get back into power it's right in principle there was real intense so Blair inherited the policy about a referendum on electoral reform it helped him form a bond with Paddy Ashdown uh, but it was already a policy which John Smith adopted very reluctantly he wasn't a fan of it nor was Tony Blair as I said earlier but he did it um, because he had to, because there was this demand in Labour. And that will come if Labour lose again. But there is always in politics, politics is largely disappointing uh, for people pursuing it, especially if you're not on the winning side, which is the Conservative side in England. Um, but it always offers hope. And, you know, if you're Starmer, you still hope you can win on your own, I think. But that might change in the coming months as well. Finally, from uh, uh, Jeff Strange. Hi, Steve. Hope all is well. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. He's enjoying uh, various uh, books of mine now on sale inside the bookshops, which are open. Yeah. I just saw uh, some of my books at Waterstones on Prime Minister's. A great thrill because the paperback version updated with a chapter on Johnson and so on. Um, the bookshops were closed, I think, when it came up, but they're now there. Yeah. Um, anyway, Jeff wonders. Uh, anyway, Jeff wonders whether a variety of forces uh, could lead to a united Ireland fairly quickly. The situation in Scotland economic forces uh, driving people towards contemplating a united Ireland and even issues such as Boris Johnson's limited attention span would might see him jettison Northern Ireland as it gets all too complicated. Um, it is going to get really, really complicated and he makes the point that if Edwin Poots uh, steers the DUP well to the right, this will give Johnson a much bigger headache. He's seen as the likely curious figure, likely seen as a, a replacement to Arlene Foster. Yeah, well, um, again, we're leaping many, many hurdles. Uh, the questions this week have been hurdle le leaping. You know, an alliance formed in opposition, uh, an anti-Tory alliance uh, to so that the anti-Tory parties can get in next time or electoral reform can happen through various means or an English parliament becomes part of a federal UK. Um, and now, uh, you know, the whole constitutional settlement being reframed through a united island. I can completely see, Jeff, how those forces are at play at the moment, all of them. But if you step back at a moment from all these uh, themes of our questions, what are the big issues um, as Britain perhaps emerges from the nightmare of the pandemic? Leveling up is one, or to put it another way, inequalities of various forms, regional, age, etc. Climate change, massive, 
um, and has only just been started. Public services, after the era of austerity, posed as being on the centre ground economically. Um, these are huge, huge challenges and will devour the energy of any government. Now, whether on top of that uh, the system can cope post-Brexit, and by the way, the consequences of post-Brexit are still massive and not yet to fully play out. Uh, all these other changes as well, I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe those changes are necessary so a government is powerful enough to address that agenda. But if that were to happen, would the Green Party agree with the Labour Party, would the Lib Dems, you know, fully agree? Yeah, on it goes. Um, and so I remain a sceptic of these sweeping changes happening quickly. They might do, but there's already a massive agenda out there to be addressed. And on that joyful note, if it's okay with all of you, we'll come to a stop. My God, we've been going for a long time. I hope you've run, sorted out the masking tape, uh, done some rowing, drunk some whiskey, uh, sorted out your wisteria or whatever it is that you are planting when listening to the podcast. Uh, we've got through a lot. I don't think we've cracked everything. We'll have a clearer idea of the political landscape as kind of well, it will trigger all sorts of things, won't it, these elections? Whether the referendum in Scotland, what's the position of Keir Starmer and all the rest of it. So don't forget, get those tickets for King's Place in my boudoir for one last time. History making, be part of history uh, at the King's Place website. And thank you all so much for listening. If you don't subscribe, do click that subscribe button. Then you'll get it automatically and everything else can be just relaxing mindfulness as politics continues to remain very, very wild. Thanks for listening. Bye.